Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Today, we're going to take a look at diversity and national security. With us to explore this issue is Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, who's had a brilliant career at the State Department. She joined the Foreign Service in 1985, spent many tours in the Middle East, and was named Ambassador to Malta under President Obama. When she left in 2016, it was a loss the State Department could hardly afford. It's a government agency that's come under sharp fire for its lack of diversity. A Government Accountability Office report and a congressional hearing earlier this year addressed the brain drain of young Black diplomats and the shortage of women in the upper ranks. Under the Trump administration, fewer than 40% of senior staff at State are female, and that number dropped to less than 30% at defense. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, when they were both presidential candidates, made a pledge to change the landscape of the white male-dominated world of national security and foreign service to pursue gender parity and racial and ethnic diversity. As President-elect's national security team comes into focus, we're beginning to see a new vision. Avril Haines, as Director of National Intelligence, and career diplomat Linda Thomas-Greenfield who's spoken about growing up in a segregated small town in Louisiana as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. There's still some key outstanding positions, head of the CIA and Secretary of Defense. In Washington circles, it's common knowledge that a woman, Michelle Flournoy, is on the short list to lead the Pentagon. And there's Biden's all-female roster for the economics and communications teams. It's certainly a change from a pattern that has been characterized as pale and male. With us now is Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley to talk about all of this and more. Welcome. Welcome to Equal Time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, let's start with the beginning so we can put it all in context of the larger picture. So, did you always dream of being a diplomat? I, oh, good question. No, but for a long time I did. I started knowing about diplomacy when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and I met some diplomats overseas in the uh, Persian Gulf state of Oman. And after learning about their work and seeing how it fit in with what I was doing as a Peace Corps volunteer, which is hoping to uh, make friends for America, teaching skills and learning about other cultures. That's when I became interested in being a diplomat. But I did always dream of traveling overseas and getting to know different people around the world. Oh, great. Uh, This is after growing up in Ohio, is it? Growing up in Ohio, yes, yes. Yeah, and so you have had a long career in foreign service uh, since the 80s. Most recently, you were ambassador to Malta. Yes, that was my last overseas post. And what was your experience throughout uh, your career? And how often were you the only woman in the room and the only Black woman? Uh, Often, usually, I would say. (laughs) Uh, My first assignment in London, um, I think there may have been one or two. I was a consular officer, visa officer. And out of 18 of us, I think there were two of us who were people of color. Uh, in Baghdad, I was the head of the consular section, and I was the only African-American at post at the time for the two years I was there. Um, in Cairo, I 
was the woman political officer out of the six who were there. Um, and so oftentimes I was the only or one of few, and there was not another African-American uh, political officer when I was in Cairo. Um, in different sections, there were a few, but, but always a very distinct minority, both gender and racially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience. Well, it has always been, from my perspective, good. And I think that goes to attitude. Um, I walk into rooms expecting to be welcomed and that's what comes out of my eyes to everybody else. Um, if there are issues, then, you know, that's their problem, not mine. Um, so I would say that my experience, certainly many of my challenges were in my view, more gender challenge than racially, um, Working in the Middle East, it is a place where women are in the minority in the professional milieu, uh, whether it's in embassies or whether it's with your interlocutors in government. Uh, certainly my time in Saudi Arabia, uh, leading a diplomatic mission, I was the only woman who was doing that for two years. Uh, and then the Brits uh, sent a woman consul general after checking in with us to see if it was uh, okay. Um, and I told them I had every success and it was perfectly wonderful and they should send a woman and they did. So the challenges, I think, were probably more often gendered than, than racial. And that meant making sure that people understood that I had the background, the knowledge, the language um, and the skills to be successful. And I think, frankly, as a woman and as a minority, that I was probably better prepared than my male colleagues, or certainly my European-American colleagues. Can we d uh, dive into that a little bit more, how <laughs> that <laughs> made you more prepared? Yes. Well, it, it comes to this. And, you know, so, certainly something my mother told both of her daughters, my sister is a retired military officer, uh, so also in a very male-dominated field. We started honing our skills as women and as minorities as the less powerful, as the less desired in certain uh, circumstances. And we had to navigate that. We had to bring interpersonal skills, that extra homework about knowing your, your brief, your portfolio, what you were about, better negotiating skills because you weren't working from a position of power. So you had to be better at the work. And I think those skills, and as an African-American in the United States, we are the minority. We are required to know about the majority in a way that the majority is not required to know about us. And I remember reading in uh, White Privilege earlier in the summer, where the author makes the observation that you can be the head of a company or a professor at a university or any number of prestigious, demanding professional positions and not know anything about Black people. Whereas there's no way I can get through school without knowing a great deal about white people, because that's our history. That's what's uh, certainly when I was growing up, that was on what was on television. I, I knew what shampoos, you know, would make your hair bouncy and shiny, <laughs> um, but they didn't know what made mine, you know, look fabulous when I was coming out. So 
that's why I say that we, we had to learn these skills almost from birth to navigate successfully our own society and therefore being able to uh, become less othered within the United States of getting people to know us, to like us, to respect what we brought to the table. Obviously, you take that and you go overseas and I'm used to uh, navigating different cultures. I'm used to making that extra effort using my interpersonal skills to get people to be open to the points I have to make, to be willing to listen to my side of the story, to give me that opening to advocate for what I've come to do. And I came with those skills. Now, the Foreign Service has a wonderful training institute and can add to that. But I came with experiences and skills that my European-American colleagues had not had to hone, had not had to develop. And so I'll stand by that as a woman and as a minority. Oh, Ambassador, so much of this sounds familiar. <laughs> and it sounds like your mom and my mom had some of the same talks uh, when talking to their children about being twice as good. Uh, so, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm telling my daughter the same thing, but telling her, I hope she doesn't have to tell it to her daughter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Some progress. So, what impact did it have on the policy when mm. you brought your perspective to the work? Well, I think in many ways, it was extremely helpful to the policy because I was able to find openings faster sometimes in advocating for it. Um, You know, as an American, we're giving our marching orders, our talking points. When you're in the field, you're reporting information home that helped the policy be developed. But when you're in the field, you are largely implementing the policy as opposed to making the policy. And and that's the difference. So you've got the demarche, you've got the instructions from Washington to go into the foreign ministry and make these points, um, to look for the support, to explain our position and why we're not going to support them or whatever that is. You are reflecting the policies of the United States when you are engaging with people at universities or in businesses, advocating for U.S. business, for example, or explaining why we're doing what we're doing in a particular Middle Eastern country. Um, Oftentimes, you're going in with hostile audiences, and the very first thing you have to do is to build a channel of communication. Um, It's it's a challenge that I relish, in all honesty. And one that many of us, if you're a successful diplomat, many of us are good at. Um, I'm I'm thinking back to an experience in Saudi that I had that, in fact, was written up in a newspaper uh, a couple of days later. I was at a university. We had not yet invaded Iraq, but the entire world uh, was anticipating that we would do so. The United States was working out its policy and what we were finally going to do, but certainly I and diplomats around the world had to make the case about why it might be necessary and what the benefits of such a move were going to be. Um, at a university in Saudi Arabia, I can tell you much of this fell on deaf ears. They, they were not convinced. But number one, I went in looking like the people who were sitting in the audience, first of all. Um, my experience as a minority 
in the United States was often recognized when I dealt with interlocutors. And I think that experience, I was able to communicate and I think make additional openings, meaning as a, as a minority American, you know, people talk about the United States being the 800 pound or the 8,000 pound gorilla when it comes to international interactions or engagements. And the United States can often impose its will on smaller or less um, strong states around the world, that, that we are that, you know, what the United States does, we get to do. Now, as diplomats, we want people to understand what we're trying to do internationally. We want people to agree to support it, if at all possible. Possible, But we definitely want them to understand it and understand it in a sympathetic fashion. So, you know, people often ask, oh, you know, they're surprised that an African-American woman is walking into the room as a diplomat. Oh, you're you're American diplomat, you know, what's it like being a black person as a diplomat, you know? And, and it's been my experience overseas that when I enter a room that the first thing I am is an American diplomat and, and I'm treated as such, you know, people don't take away or discount because I am an African American. That has never been my experience working in the Middle East or Europe, or when I was doing counterterrorism, the entire world. It's never been my experience. But that that understanding of what it feels like to be the less powerful at the negotiating table, um, I I can use. I can express my understanding of the position and make sure people understand that even though I'm sitting on the powerful side of the table, I come with complete respect and understanding and and a desire to understand and reach a place where both sides are satisfied with the outcome. Not thrilled necessarily, but yes. satisfied with the outcome. I guess you saw the need because you helped start a group, I think in 2019, the uh, Leadership Council for Women in National Security, which is amazing. So tell me a little yes. bit. Yes, a little applause is due. What was the goal? <laughs> <laughs> what was the goal? The goal was to fill a space we found too empty. Um, all of us who uh, were the founding members and many others who were in part of the initial discussions about, you know, what we want to do with the situation that we recognized um, that some of us found ourselves and not all of us was that women at the senior level, because there are a number of organizations around Washington that support women and or minorities who are entering the field. Uh, and some mid-level support as well. And some of the programs I've been through or, or organizations that I've been a part of, Women in International Security, for instance, WISE, I mean, there are others that are out there. But at the top level of breaking that top barrier in national security, which is so white male dominated, which means all the best people are not at the table, all the best thoughts and options and perspectives for coming out with successful recommendations are not in the room, are not at the table. How do we help us get there ourselves? And more importantly, those who are coming behind us, who are looking at that space and thinking, oh my God, is this where my career stops? So that was the space we were trying to fill. 
supporting that cohort of women. And whether it was in government positions, whether it was in think tanks, you know, because people go back and forth between the two and the analysis, the thought processes, the deep thinking on so many issues happens in think tanks, not in the government, because you don't have time. You're implementing policy, you're making policy. So the thought processes come elsewhere. But also in on Capitol Hill, you know, women of Congress, you know, how could we help them, whether it's, you know, uh, new Congresswomen who need foreign policy uh, support or or uh, information and or the staffing that is so important on Capitol Hill. Um, as we know, certainly at the top, it does not look like America any more than the national security establishment does. So all of these arenas, we were thinking, how can we help? So that's how we got together. That's how we uh, put together our core um, purpose and our, our, our emphasis, as you know, we stepped out immediately with seeking candidates running for office to take the pledge to reach gender parity in the national security establishment at the top, not only at the bottom and in the middle, but at the top, because there were so many women that we knew personally and of that were ready to serve at the very top of the, the uh, foreign policy national security establishment. And it's bipartisan, correct? Uh, and both it parties? is bipartisan, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, strong, uh, uh, outstanding candidates come from all perspectives and certainly both and more parties. So tell me a little bit about some of the things the group has done. I know you have actually supplied databases because so many times people will say, well, we just can't find people. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit that you've done uh, both in the Trump administration and, in the, and the Biden-Harris soon-to-be uh, about supplying these lists of exceptional women. Yeah. Well, nobody can say that anymore. Uh, our amazing, amazing staff and our steering committee, executive committee, we, we, we are a cohort of highly accomplished women. Anyone can go to our website and get a view of who's out there and some incredibly impressive bios. So that is the start. But we certainly wanted to reflect the reality that women with knowledge and experience and um, incredible attributes to bring to the national security arena are not necessarily sitting in Washington, D.C., or New York, or Boston, or L.A., but are in different places around the world. So we worked hard to bring, to cast the net widely for women ready to do senior positions. And, you know, at this time, they may be in different industries, uh, working, bringing their expertise, whether it's in scientific arena um, certainly in, in various industries, banking, I mean, economy, et cetera, economics, et cetera. So we cast our net very widely. Um, we went to our immediate networks, and then we went to those networks, networks. And the response was tremendous. I mean, people who said, yes, of course, I know some amazing women, some outstanding women, some women who bring, you know, great um, thinking and analysis who would be pleased and privileged to serve the American people in the U.S. government. And so the database was put together. We gave everyone in it the option of indicating uh, which or both 
administrations they would be willing to serve in because obviously being bipartisan, um, we were wanting to staff up whatever the next administration would be. And, you know, put the questions out there, allowed them to identify where they uh, felt that their expertise would lead them and put together over 800 names of amazing women. I mean, it's just really exciting to, to go through and, and see all of these people ready to serve, 800. And of course, we were, our, our goal was to put forward at least three names for every position that was in the plump book, that's in the um, senior, uh, either Senate confirmable or senior uh, positions that are politically filled as opposed to filled by career um, uh, employees. And so we wanted to make sure, because so often, you know, you'll get one name on the list of a woman or a minority, and we did do a very um, intentional, intentional is the important word, um, I believe intentionality and accountability are the two things that really make a difference when you're trying to make a change in diversity and inclusion. You can't hope, you know, you put the word out there, everybody welcome, that's not going to do it. You've got to be intentional about it. And so we did go to networks that were supportive of Latina or African-American or Asian-American or, or Native Americans who were interested in national security in foreign policy. We very deliberately went to sources and sought out and asked for others to ensure that we had a significant portion of minority women in this database. And it, it wasn't 50% because we don't make up 50% of the nation, but it certainly was over 30% of minority women who were among those 800. Um, and so we, as I said, we were very deliberate in casting our net wide and then having the ability to ensure that not just one name, because when it's only one name, you can say, yes, we, we had a minority, <laughs> we had a woman on the list, but we go with the guy. I think it's McKinsey who may have done a study that shows you need at least three women for a woman to have a real opportunity to be selected. And so that's why we wanted to have at least three. Yes, I can hear the excitement in your voice. So <laughs> I've got to ask you, since you gave this great list, what do you think of the Biden-Harris team as it's shaping up? Because I know they've made a little history with some of their uh, appointees or planned appointees in the National Security and Foreign Service team. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that it has started off amazingly and, and touching all of us as Americans because it's clear that we all have the real possibility to be reflected, have our voices at the table so that this will be an administration that serves all American people. And that is exciting. That is as it should be. So, you know, kudos for, for making these amazing selections. And uh, many of them I know, some of them I know well. Uh, I have nothing but accolades and kudos because they all come with solid experience and dedication to the American people. It's clear that they are being selected for what they bring to the table with regard to experience and knowledge and not because they are friends or have a lot of money. Um, 
that they're they're being selected for what they're going to bring to the American people. And so I am incredibly excited and pleased and looking forward to who else is going to be announced and uh, highly anticipating that this is going to be a government that can be highly effective and is certainly uh, focused on finding solutions and no drama, no no silliness, just really serving the American people. And, and so I'm very excited. Yeah. So um, you are so impassioned. Obviously, you've had a brilliant career, but would you consider a return to the national security or foreign service space if something came up that you couldn't <laughs> resist? <laughs> well, those are the key words that not resistible. Um, public service can be carried out in many ways. Um, and so coming back home for me to Ohio, um, whether, you know, community contributing to my community through, you know, church, I work, um, food banks, I give talks on foreign policy. I've been lecturing at local universities. I have been mentoring young people in Ohio because Ohioans make great diplomats, um, <laughs> minority Ohioans and majority Ohioans, women in particular. We all have something to share and give. And this isn't, you know, I'm not trying to replace all white people with brown people because we oh, all okay. have something to give. So that my, my public service um, need has been well filled here. If it's the right job, that I can really contribute to making our foreign service more reflective of America, um, then certainly it would be something I'd consider. But the, the, you know, with Elsie Wins and all the other things that I'm doing, I, I'm really feeling gratified about the changes that I see coming. That I see coming and can say to my own children, this, we're, we're going we're gonna to make this country better. We really are. Why do you think that this national security arena has been so difficult for women, particularly Black women, to break into? Yeah. I think because maybe around the world that people think about national security as a man's job. That's it. I remember hearing in 2016 a discussion on, on uh, a radio station and a caller phoning in and, and saying, yes, she's really, you know, capable, the resume experience, but she just doesn't look like a commander in chief. And I was screaming at the radio and trying <laughs> to dial in so I could comment <laughs> on that comment. But, but unfortunately, the caller was honest because that's what people think. When it's national security, when it comes to, uh, navigating conflict, which is so foolish, because if you think about who in the world has to navigate conflict, <laughs> it's women, <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to go back and speak, you know, as a mother, as a parent, you know, in, in very traditional roles at certain periods of my life and, and not to take any of my husband hears this, he'll be yelling a little bit because he certainly had many <laughs> periods where he was in charge of the children 100% because my job took me away or, you know, my family was evacuated for, for 18 months from post and he had to do everything. So not to take away from that at all, but navigating conflict is something that as women, I will say, we know how to do. And more importantly, we bring great experiences and 
thought processes to preventing conflict, which is even more important than making it, is preventing it. And so having our voices in these discussions, in our international relations, in you know, in the military in particular, how should we be setting ourselves up to avoid conflict? How should we be preparing to, to minimize it as, as best as possible? Female voices are important to that discussion and not just because of our gender, not just because of that. It doesn't do any good to have a female at the table if they are simply repeating or bringing the same perspectives as are already at the table. The point is to bring diversity of background. It's often related to gender. It's often related to color, to race, to ethnicity, to religion, to where you were brought up. And so those are quick ways to do it. Those are quick ways to do it. But the point is to bring different perspectives and to reflect America. I do have one question that I always ask my guests, which uh, is, what is a question that I haven't asked you that you kind of wish I had because you have something important to say about this topic? Oh, really? On the spot there. Um, (laughs) You know, you've done a pretty good job (laughs) of covering the waterfront with regard to the questions. One thing I I will add, and... um, you know, this this year that we are all so looking forward to being over for so many reasons. Um, I I have a, a, a dear friend of my my choir director in Washington with whom I'm very much in touch with, um, who's in ICU with COVID uh-huh. right now. This has touched us all in one way or another. And as a minority, I know that we know more people who are impacted by COVID. One, you know, friends who are frontline workers or friends who are on the in hospitals or grocery stores, whatever that frontline may be, as well as people who have been struck down by this. Um, I know too many people who have had COVID, survived COVID, thank goodness. But I'm I'm going to ask for prayers for this person because. He is in a really difficult uh, place right now this morning. And so he's really on my mind and, mm. and on my heart. And uh, wow. I'll, I'll ask for prayers for him. I will do that. I will do that for certain. And I ask our listeners as well. And as someone who knows what's going on globally, and uh, is there something that keeps you up at night? Because you know the situation. Everything is always so volatile. And there's so many moving parts. Uh, uh, what what keeps you up at night? Yeah, um, I worry that those who have prospered during the last four years because of the lack of attention that we have given, or the stepping back from our values, our ideals, as the United States, as America that they will be looking to do something in this space before there is a change of leadership. So I do think about that. I worry about that a little bit, but just a little. And there is so much hope around the world and in my own self um, at getting solid, experienced, 
dedicated, compassionate leadership in place again uh, that I'm very hopeful about the future. I'm very hopeful. Great. Thank you so much for joining Equal Time, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley. And I'm going to say we might be reaching out again as more picks and policies see the light. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you. It was my privilege. Thank you. So what's been keeping me up at night? I do want to ask those holiday crowds at the airport to stay home and be patient. A vaccine is on the way. And I want to ask members of the Trump administration to slow down and just ease the transition to a new Biden-Harris administration. Alas, that is not to be, which is why we're still seeing ramped up and futile attempts to stop the inevitable of President Biden and why legislation is stalled over so many things, including civil war generals. Talk about lost causes, which is what I do in my column this week, and why, lost or not, they can nevertheless damage individuals and democracy. Check it out. Now, one of my listeners told me she's concerned about doing right by the people in her life. She has a brand new nephew, and she wants to do everything she can to let this Black boy know how loved he is. So what's keeping you tossing and turning? Let me know with a tweet at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.